Hey everybody, it's Reagan Kenop. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. We are hoping to address the crisis of folks dying in prison. I saw the need for folks who understand policy and lawmaking in Salem to also be apprised of the issues and situations that were currently impacting criminal defense attorneys and also the defendants that they're representing. If they're not able to make it through an application process, then we are talking about a serious issue in regards to accessibility and ease accessing resources. Hello, listeners. It's Reagan here from the Oregon Bridge podcast coming to you live from wherever it is in my house. I record the podcast really just in my office. You're probably wondering why you aren't hearing Ben's voice. Well, first of all, I'm glad to be back. I did successfully build my chicken coop. Hopefully you all heard about that. Very important for you to know. But I'm here because Ben isn't. I'm doing my first solo pod. I did it with Justin Lowe from the Oregon Justice Resource Center. And we kind of talked about, you know, his experience getting into politics and his background there and then how he kind of transitioned to this work that he's doing now as an investigative researcher for OJRC. And so we talked about that. And so he explains a little bit about issues that he's working on and their, you know, public policy type of things and research that is going to be, I think, going to be in play and in discussion in the near future in terms of dealing with crime in the state of Oregon, which is continually a hot topic. So we're contributing a little bit to the the hotness of the topic here. Talking about it, really appreciate Justin. He did a great job and it was really a really great guest to have on for my very first solo podcast. So next week, We've got a great guest lined up, so hopefully we don't have any additional scheduling issues and we'll be back and Ben can tell you all what he thought of my solo episode. So without further ado, we kind of go into Justin's bio in the episode, so I'm not going to do that too much here. Let's go ahead and get started. Harang Long PC has always recognized that achieving our clients' goals sometimes requires a change in the law. And in other situations, clients need help stopping or changing proposed amendments to the law that put their interests at risk. For decades, we have played a role in shaping Oregon law on many subjects, from narrow regulations to major policy changes implicating billions of dollars. Our lawyers work with clients to draft legislation, prepare legal opinions and testimony to share with legislators, coordinate with professional lobbyists, and work directly with policymakers. To learn more about Harang Long's policy and politics practice, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. Justin Lowe, welcome to the Oregon Bridge. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So Justin, you're here to talk a little bit about your work. You kind of have a very public policy and specifically Oregon public policy focused background. And so really appreciate you coming on to be a guest. And so I think my first question is just how did you get interested in the public policy realm in Oregon? That's a great question. And it really is rooted in my upbringing. I grew up out in what I consider quasi-rural Oregon. I grew up around Estacada. And so I was close enough to the metro to still make it into town and whatnot. But I grew up out there with a third generation Chinese American father who 
was a veteran from the Vietnam War era and a mom who immigrated from the Philippines. And by nature of those two like very strong and prevalent identities in growing up, it was a mix of being dedicated to the American dream and working hard and supporting others, as well as being invested in civic engagement and communal responsibility, especially because my father grew up in the 60s and was around during the civil rights era and JFK and all those different leaders who were purporting, contributing to community and giving back and participating in public service. And so that pushed me into high school of being involved in student government and being invested in community and culture building. And by the time that I was off to undergrad at University of Portland, I decided that public policy was definitely a space that I wanted to enter to be able to positively influence and make changes based on issues that I saw peers struggling with when I was growing up in Estacada and Oregon City, as well as issues that I saw based on my lived experience as uh, the son of an immigrant and then also uh, a veteran. And so I graduated with a psych and political science degree at University of Portland. And after working a few oddball jobs straight out of undergrad, I got hired on with the Democratic Party of Oregon's coordinated campaign in 2018. After that, I worked as a criminal defense paralegal because I was still trying to find my space in terms of how do I enter the Oregon political sphere, especially since I didn't have a direct route coming out of University of Portland to get connected to Salem, as well as I knew that I wanted to leave the door open to potentially go to law school. And I thought that a great way to understand whether or not that was a path for me that would be viable was working in the criminal defense space. And after 2020, I had helped Ben on his first campaign uh, running for school board, which naturally introduced me to Representative Graber, who was considering running for her seat at the time. And we hit it off really well after being introduced to one another. And I signed on as her first campaign manager and helped run her first race and I followed her into the building afterwards. And that was really how I got connected into working in the public policy space here in Oregon. Awesome. Were there any issues that you saw based on your lived experience and then also what you saw, because you said you saw happening around you in Estacada, were there issues that you saw crossed over that were similar challenges for both of those two tracks or were they mostly divergent challenges? I wouldn't necessarily say that they're divergent. I think that some of the most pressing issues that I witnessed while growing up in Estacada and Oregon City was seeing working families struggle. You know, seeing folks struggle to put dinner on the table, uh, especially when raising their families, working long hours. Like I had friends who we would basically be each other's babysitters in terms of spending time together while my dad worked 48 hour shifts on the trains going from Portland to Seattle and then being gone for two to three days at a time and their parents being a dual income family to make things work where the 
one parent was working during the day and then they'd switch off and another parent was working the evening shifts. Mm. And so I recognized that those were challenges that I didn't feel like were very great or like they weren't, they didn't feel just in a, in a space where I came from a mother who came here for the land of opportunities and a place to be able to make it on her own. And I was seeing her struggle, my dad's struggle, and then families who had been here for maybe generations longer than I, my family had been struggling with similar issues. And these were folks who were working manual labor jobs, some union jobs that weren't paying well uh, or uh, were just really difficult to work in. And I was very motivated coming out of that lived experience to be able to be in positions and spaces where I could use what I saw growing up in my lived experience and what I, the values that I took away from my family upbringing to help make change around me, whether it was at a local level when I was doing some local political and community work in Tigard when I lived there at the time, to then when I followed Rep Graber into Salem and was helping her push policy and also helping constituents navigate getting support and resources from state and local governments. That's definitely a big part of the job there in Salem when you're a legislative staffer, you get a lot of that kind of uh, contact. So, And Absolutely. so then your kind of first big foray into politics before you work for Representative Graber is coordinating a campaign with the DPO. Kind of tell me about that. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was an eye-opening experience because it was the first time that I had ever been involved in campaign work. I did not grow up very politically active in high school, and I was dipping my toes into it in undergrad, but working for the coordinated campaign in 2018 was definitely my first big real experience. And I was working as a field director and working in Washington County and Clackamas County, canvassing for candidates, and then also training and recruiting volunteers. And eventually there's a heavy emphasis on recruiting volunteers and getting them comfortable with speaking on issues at the door and being able to stump for candidates under the campaign. Makes sense. And then I don't know that you mentioned this, but you sort of shared in your bio, you did some, you were an assistant in criminal defense litigation and kind of was a quasi paralegal. Did that kind of get you more interested in doing law-related stuff, or did it get you less interested in doing the law and more interested in doing the policy? It made me interested in both, to be quite honest, because I saw the need for folks who understand policy and lawmaking in Salem to also be apprised of the issues and situations that were currently impacting criminal defense attorneys, their teams or support staff, and also the defendants that they're representing. And I think that by having one foot in each realm, it helped better contextualize my understanding of the issues and how one directly impacts the other or how one could be supported and maybe better addressed. Say like, you know, helping support criminal defense attorneys by pushing public policy fixes to help the way their caseloads are or to help them with funding and other various means such as that. And then you kind of go into, you know, working 
you know, on a campaign? Was there anything different working as a candidate campaign versus working for a, a political party? Did you feel like those were very different experiences or were they the same? There were some similarities for sure. Like when I was first starting out building up Representative Graber's team of volunteers in the community. And of course, this was before COVID had hit. There were a lot of cold call opportunities for me to get connected with local PCPs, the precinct committee people who are part of the party at the local level to get them familiar with Rep Graber and also to encourage them to come out and knock doors with us. And so that was a skill from the coordinated campaign that translated pretty well mm -hmm. to running a campaign as a manager. And then there were other differences where, you know, as a campaign manager, part of your roles and responsibilities, literally in the name, are to manage your candidate. And that went from working on managing her calendar and schedule as someone who is a firefighter and paramedic. She works very similar long shifts as I grew up witnessing my dad work, mm -hmm. where she'd be on for maybe 24 to 48 hours at a time during the summertime when she was out on line fighting wildfires she'd be gone for maybe four or five days. And so there's one part of, you know, checking in with her, making sure she's okay and updating her on all the tasks that have been done on the campaign. And then when she's gone and, you know, working on the fire line where I'm not able to get in contact with her, it's then stepping into the role of being the, the point person for everything in terms of coordinating with other you know, campaign supporters and organizations that want to be caught up to date with how the campaign is running and functioning. And so it was quite an experience to get to do that, especially as a first time campaign manager with a first time candidate who has a very unique day job. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so then you transition into more of that legislative role and, you know, I'm coming with that same kind of experience as being a, a legislative staffer. Right. Was there anything unique about that experience that you feel like is worth sharing with our listeners? I think the number one thing that I'd like to share with listeners, and I am sure that you can attest to this as well, was getting a very intimate understanding of constituents' needs and how mm -hmm. to to help them. Like I, I can't remember all the bills and policy ideas that I helped work on in Rep Graber's office. But what I can remember are a lot of stories, whether they were emails or phone calls that I fielded from folks in district who were struggling, especially at a very difficult time, like in 2021, during the long session when the pandemic was in full effect. And so connecting with constituents who needed housing and rental assistance at the time, were trying to figure out how to navigate the DMV when things were shut down and they were only doing scheduled appointments and also helping connect them to federal resources too with our you know partner Congresswoman's office. And so my biggest takeaway was just a very deep appreciation for how at the state government level, I feel like there were very direct ways to to help constituents and be a part of 
helping them navigate state agencies and a lot of the confusing processes that they'd have to go to to get help. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think that's ends up being kind of number one job is, you know, government can be a challenge to navigate. And one of the benefits of being a state legislator is typically an agency will answer your emails when you reach out. So somebody who isn't getting a lot of response from that, you know, that you have a citizen who's dealing with a worker and they're not in charge of everything and it may be sort of out of their control, but they're trying to help this constituent best case scenario. That's not every case, um, unfortunately. But right. uh, then you're in this scenario where the state legislator is reaching out to maybe a little bit higher level. And so then that's going to get a response from someone who's at one of those higher levels and they're going to you know, prioritize that case maybe. And so that's not ideally how you want your government to work. But in certain circumstances, it's a nice benefit to be able to support your constituents and be able to help them navigate issues. And sometimes the answer is there's nothing that can be done because of the law and the process and stuff, but sometimes there can be. And so it's rewarding often, I find, to be able to help constituents in that way. Absolutely. I 100% agree and found that to be some of the most rewarding contributions that I made to Rep Graber's office in that community. And you learn that staffers actually do have, you know, an influence. You can be a first-time staffer in an office and something you say can ultimately change a process or a law or stuff like that. I've seen it happen all the time. So it's, it kind of is, it's a little scary on the one hand to think about it like that. But on the other hand, it's nice to know that you can't actually influence the things that are happening in Salem. Sure. Yes. And being able to have, I think the greatest story that I found was being able to elevate what we were seeing on the ground with the struggles and issues that constituents were experiencing. And so being that megaphone for them and knowing that I was able to play a role in highlighting some of the struggles that were happening within the community. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and I want to kind of transition into what your current organization you're working for, a brief description about your current role, and kind of talk about some of the stuff that you're working on. Yeah, so I am currently the investigative research associate over at the Oregon Justice Resource Center. We are a nonprofit public interest firm that has multiple projects under our organization's name, one of which being Oregon's Innocence Project, that state chapter of the national organization. It's uh, nestled under our nonprofit. And so my specific role in the Oregon Justice Resource Center, the OJRC, is to essentially do research and writing on topics that may not be breaking through to the forefront of media, public discussion, or policy discussions. And I enjoy it because I get to dive into a very niche criminal justice subject for a couple months and then write anywhere from a 10 to 25-page report on the subject with some wonderful comms and graphic uh, design teams at our organization to then produce really thorough and beautiful reports that we're able to get in front of the eyes of everyday Oregonians, journalists, media companies, and then also local and state officials who might be interested in learning more about these subjects who might not know anything about it and is maybe helpful in their understanding of criminal justice issues in Oregon and how they might be able to approach public policy solutions. 
can you give us an example? And maybe that's, you know, one of the, the policy topics we can discuss is maybe there's a report that you've written that has prompted a discussion. Yes, I can talk about one of my most recent reports that was published, which was my compassionate medical release report. And this report is about a concept where we are hoping to address the crisis of folks dying in prison and the costs that are associated with that, the the humane and physical costs that are also associated and the impact that that has on adults in custody who are terminally ill or dying within prison and also their families and the community at large. And so I spent about four to six months interviewing hospice volunteers within the Department of Corrections. So these are individuals who are also adults in custody who have the opportunity to volunteer in their facility's hospice program. And for listeners who might not be familiar, need a refresher, hospice is essentially the sort of like final end of life care that you undergo Mm -hmm. when you have maybe six months or less left to live and you have a terminal illness. And so a lot of what hospice volunteers in the Department of Corrections did were essentially to make life as easy and as comfortable as possible in a place and environment that is fairly harsh and unforgiving. Mm. And even more so when you're in your final days, weeks, and months. And is there kind of a a public policy option or idea that that you think may address some of these challenges that you saw when you did this report? Yes. Uh, and I'll get to some of the challenges that I I saw and realized when I was interviewing hospice volunteers in a moment. But the current status of how, you know, dying in prison works in Oregon and also what means there are to remedy this issue are very limited and narrow in scope. So for example, Oregon currently has a process called early parole release mm-hmm. that can allow individuals who are on hospice or on dying in prison to apply to to get early release. However, it's a very difficult process for folks to undergo especially when they are on hospice first of all because they could just be very physically incapacitated at the time and not have the assistance to navigate the application process. But one of the difficulties is that the Board of Parole is very backlogged with all the various things that it oversees. And so when someone submits an application when they're on hospice, it could be months until they receive confirmation that their application has been received and reviewed and even months after before they have an opportunity to be able to explain their case before the board of parole. And so what you find is that there are a lot of people within the Department of Corrections over the years who have been on hospice who have either foregone applying for early parole release in the first place or many folks have died 
while when they initiated the process without mm. being able to make it very far in the application process or having their case heard. Interesting. And so what's kind of maybe the solution that'd be identified or proposed solutions that, you know, potentially could be under consideration in the future? So one of the proposed solutions that could help remedy this issue would be to, first of all, be able to set timelines that an applicant's application needs to be considered under so that mm. way it is timely and expedient because uh, keeping someone stuck within the application process for months on end isn't benefiting anyone in the situation for example the applicant who is in doc on hospice care and is dying and is in pain and in ailments that individual is having their entire condition and their experience and their pain exacerbated by still being in prison. At the same time, it's costing taxpayer dollars to keep that individual on hospice in DOC when the Department of Corrections has to foot that bill. And that's because uh, these folks aren't eligible for, say, like the Oregon Health Plan or even Medicare or Medicaid while they are in custody in DOC. And from the humanity, uh, humanitarian standpoint, these individuals are physically incapacitated. I've heard stories from hospice volunteers where they cannot sit upright without assistance from a volunteer. These patients cannot go to the bathroom or bathe or eat without assistance. These are individuals that are severely limited in what they can do physically outside of the parameters of the bed that they're in in the infirmary. And so these people should be with loved ones, with family members and friends for their last final days instead of taking up bed space in the Department of Corrections where they're not receiving full hospice care that they could potentially get maybe out in the community where they are using resources that could be dedicated to other adults in custody and also could save money. And at the end of the day, the focus should also be to be able to reunite families for the final like days and weeks that they have left. So are there any other kind of uh, policy proposals or, or types of reports that you've worked on that that you kind of want to share in terms of uh, your work at OJRC and things that you think are you know important for Oregonians to consider? Yes, I do. And I'm so sorry to backtrack a little bit, but no one of the other policy concepts that I just wanted to briefly mention is that other than establishing timelines, we have been looking into concepts and ideas about how maybe we could have a committee of medical professionals who help oversee applications of hospice patients. Mm. So that way they are being vetted and viewed from a medically competent and medically informed standpoint to where their applications for release are considered on that basis rather than, say, the Board of Parole's specific lens of public safety control and 
security. If you look at the membership on the Board of Parole, many of those folks either have backgrounds in law enforcement or prosecution and could view compassionate medical release applicants from that lens rather than the fact that they're physically incapacitated due to their end-of-life stage that they're in and the progression of the medical illness that they're currently experiencing. And so we, we believe that to have a medically informed process within compassionate medical release would be beneficial to all parties involved and could help make more appropriate and accurate decisions for these patients that are on hospice care and who are also dying or physically incapacitated in other means in the Department of Corrections. And do they have access to, you know, if they were to get a medical release, are they going to have access to different services or what's the kind of, what happens to them if they get released under the kind of medical release, assuming they have, I assuming it requires like a diagnosis that they have a terminal illness of some kind? Yes, that's a great question. One of the things that I think would be really beneficial if a policy concept like this were to move forward is that we have very much acknowledged that getting continuity of care and being transferred out into uh, community services is very critical into ensuring the success of an idea like this. And so being able to maybe provide an individual whose role is to help them navigate that transition of continuity of care. So once a patient puts in an application, they could be connected with a service navigator that ensures that they have a home to go to and a provider to get connected with well before they're released. So that way, by the time medical professionals and the board of parole make a recommendation for release, all these things are set up. So it's very streamlined and it's without any barriers or timeline hangups. And at the same time, we can ensure that these individuals aren't just being released without somewhere to go and without friends or family members and a provider to be connected with. One of my frustrations, and this isn't necessarily directed at you, Justin, but it was something I was thinking about as you're talking with government in general and kind of being more, you know, more on the side of smaller government is like when government and services provided by governments get so complicated that you need navigators, basically people who are hired to help people navigate through all the different paperwork, all the different steps, all the different hurdles, all the different logistics that you have to go through and the coordination of all those things. It feels like we're failing a little bit in terms of making government work for average citizens, right? Where it's like if the average person or even a person who is, you know, facing some sort of challenge in your life, right? Unfortunately, you're going to interact with government services, you know, whether it's fire or police or whatever it is during traumatic events in your lives, particularly, right? I'd really love to see us get a focus on making those services and navigating them just so much more accessible so that people really understand what's happening. And they don't, you know, we don't have to have people whose job it is literally to navigate red tape and all that stuff, right? What a challenge that's got to be for people. I mean, I'm, you and I are pretty well versed in public policy, probably pretty experienced in government. And there's still things that, you know, I, I won't speak for you, but for me, I run into and I just go, why is that like this? Right? Why is that such a challenge? Yeah. Why, why are there so many steps? 
you know, why the, and of course there's people who were sitting around and talking about the bills in the legislature or dealing with the rules and regulations, getting input. People are giving input on these things and came to decision, but got to have that focus on like the end results and the consumers of these, you know, of these services. And that's, I think, I think that's a real challenge and something that I'd love to see, you know, someday some, you know, maybe there'll be bipartisan cooperation on fixing that. Cause I think a lot of people want to see that changed. I agree. I think that you hit the nail on the head with we have a lot of programs and services that I don't even know about. <laughs> and so I'm with you on that, right. where I could find out about something just by talking to friends and colleagues who work in the same space that we do. And I learn about something related to healthcare or housing that is not my field. And I, I would definitely make the same sort of statements of like, why is that like that? Totally. And also, why can't people navigate that more successfully? And I, going back to my experience in the legislature of helping constituents, literally, I was their navigator. Like I was helping mm -hmm. them navigate yep. their yep. complaints and their grievances and the needs that they are hoping to uh, uh, access from state agencies. And the fact that I had to do that meant that it was inaccessible for someone at the base level who is not connected to government, who is not connected to public policy spaces. And uh, I would agree that in a sense, when, if from my perspective, if I'm thinking that it's the state's role to help provide services and to support community and help folks be able to live their best successful lives, if they're not able to make it through an application process or to make it through trying to get help from an agency and they need multiple folks to help them along the way or maybe even a legislator to knock on someone's door to make that issue heard, then we are talking about a, a serious issue in regards to accessibility and ease of accessing resources. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Is there maybe one more, we probably have time for like one more policy concept or something else you want to share that our listeners should be considering coming to a, a legislature or a ballot box near you eventually? Yeah, I guess another policy issue that I've had a role in doing some research and then also some communication planning around is supporting survivor defendants. Mm -hmm. And this is a... This is a term that our organization and scholars have coined, so I'll break it down for folks. A survivor defendant is basically an individual who has suffered or undergone domestic violence. So they have an abuser. And due to that abuser and or the domestic violence that they're experiencing, that individual may find themselves ending up like being charged with an offense for committing a crime due to the domestic violence. And that could be something from, you know, say like a woman with a child who is protecting their child and they strike back against their abuser and they end up becoming a defendant themselves in mm. the criminal justice process. They become charged with an offense and a crime and as a result, they are a survivor of domestic violence who has now become a criminal defendant. 
hence the term survivor defendant. Mm. And our organization has worked very closely with DV orgs and also with women at the Coffee Creek Correctional Facilities. And we have found that there are a majority of individuals based on polling that we have done in Coffee Creek Facility. Uh, sorry, not a majority. There's no, 65% fine. of women at Coffee Creek Facility based on a 140 women sample who were in a relationship at the time of their arrest and they reported experiencing abuse in that relationship. And 44% of those women in their relationship at the time of arrest had reported that their relationship was a contributing factor to their conviction. And so more so, where it's safe to assume because of the abuse then and that that abuse was a contributing factor. And they've explained either that they experienced abuse at the time of arrest or that the relationship was a contributing factor to their conviction. All of that points to the fact that we have an issue in our state and also nationally in terms of convicting individuals who are survivors of domestic violence and not taking into consideration that as a mitigating factor in the totality of the circumstance of their offense. Hmm. That's fascinating. Well, it'll be kind of interesting yeah. to see you know, Oregon's kind of been one of those states that has kind of a split past, I would say, in terms of how it handles crime issues, right? So Oregon has gotten pretty progressive of late, you know, decriminalizing you know, certain drugs, being one of the early states to decriminalize marijuana, right? Certainly that's kind of, you know, a difference from some of the other states, although I think more states are legalizing marijuana at the very least, right? I don't know where we're at right. in certain, the total number of states, but certainly continues to increase every election with ballot measures in states, right? And then you right. also have kind of its history as being, well, we were one of two states that had non-unanimous juries. And so now Oregon's kind of grappling with the Supreme Court decision that said you can't have non-unanimous juries. And then the Oregon Supreme Court decision, which actually made that retroactive back to all previous decisions. I don't remember if it's time limited. And then also having Measure 11 with the mandatory minimums, right? So Oregon's kind of, you know, has some tough on crime stances and some less tough on crime, you know, stances. And so it's interesting to kind of see that continue to play out in the the public policy arena and kind of interested to see what the future of that is going to be as we have these debates about, you know, what is, you know, Portland and and the safety there and how to handle, you know, homelessness, what it should be treated, you know, more as a humanitarian versus criminal right and how to apply the laws right. and stuff like that so you're kind of seeing and seeing that debate kind of play out on a public policy stage in terms of you know advocating you know on those issues on both sides it's pretty fascinating to watch it is very fascinating to watch and to also participate in to be able to provide our unique experiences of advocating from a standpoint of all of our positions and our work is informed by the work that we do with our clients. And we have many attorneys who work in various different programs, whether it's working with incarcerated youth, incarcerated women at Coffee Creek. And uh, from that, we get a very 
intimate sense of the criminal justice system from the defense side and also get to then take that information and allow it to help us create policy solutions and ideas that we hope to educate the public on and also push for in terms of starting conversations and being able to inform folks of these issues like the survivor defendant issue that I've just brought up. And, you know, there are, I think, a couple surveys that have found like one third of women in Oregon have experienced domestic violence and are survivors. Mm -hmm. And due to us knowing that that can be a pathway to incarceration for some folks, and I believe that that is an area that we should be looking at a little closer and to come up with creative solutions that can acknowledge harm that is done all around and also take into consideration, again, the totality of circumstances and be able to create a system that is proportionate and just. Because right now, if, for example, we've had some clients where they are a survivor defendant and they received a harsher sentence than their abuser did. So there, that right there, that doesn't feel just or proportionate, especially if if it weren't for the domestic violence, they wouldn't have been put in the situation where they were caught and convicted for an offense. Well, thank you for sharing, Justin, from the Oregon Justice Research. Is it center or council? I, I feel like I always get that wrong. Resource center. Oregon Justice Resource Center. Appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Hope we can have you back soon. Hope we can have you back when Ben's here since uh, <laughs> you worked on his school board race. Let's make sure that everyone who listens to this episode reaches out to Ben and lets him know that he's a terrible friend for not being here and instead focusing on whatever it is he's busy focusing on. Could be legislative work, could be not. You know, I'm not going to give him the benefit of the doubt on this. You know, I don't think <laughs> we should. Not. Should we, Justin? No, I don't think that he deserves the benefit on the doubt on this one. However, I will say that you were a much more gracious and kind host than I think he would have been because... Half the time, I think he would have spent attempting to, to roast me or get me to slip up. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, we'll have to see that then. That's why we'll have to have you back then, Justin. Uh, uh, this is uh, Justin Lowe from the Oregon Justice uh, Research Center. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.